Hello, everybody. It's Jean Nathan, and this is Crosstown Conversations in our new time slot, 2 o'clock on Wednesdays. I hope some of my old fans from Thursday are uh, with us and uh, look forward to you getting used to this time frame. I, I'm having a little problem with it because by 2 in the afternoon, my brain is scrambled. I'm already dealing with a lot of stuff. One of the things that I'm dealing with right now, and I'm so excited about it because it's so important for everybody in the immediate neighborhood and for all of us in the city, is the newest market in the city on O.C. Haley, Aretha Castle Haley. I say Aretha Castle because I knew her and I treasure her, and we should say Aretha Castle Haley. Boulevard in the Myrtle Bank School Building. You know that big, gorgeous brick? Uh, a school that has been redone and it's been looking like it was closed for a while because we were working hard at getting things right in the market. And um, we finally did with the help of someone whose name I probably am not going to pronounce right, Daniel Esses. Esses. Daniel Esses is the manager of the Dryads Public Market which is the brand-new grocery at CEO would be a better title, CEO um, uh, at uh, the Myrtle Banks building. And I know folks have been saying, when is it going to open? When is it going to open? And, and actually, it's been sort of partially open now for some time, and I have imbibed, and I'm going to talk about what I love about this market. But Daniel is the guy who has brought this thing forward and is making it happen. So we're going to we're going to talk to Daniel first and get a little bit of an idea. This is kind of a big undertaking for you. You could say that again, yeah. You're you're a chef, a restaurateur, mm-hmm. a culinary genius. I've heard, um, but to take on a market is a big darn deal. And so I want to know what motivated you to do this. What is it about running a market that appealed to you? And how do you think um, it, it, people are going to use it, and, and you know, how are you going to make it great for them? Yeah, a lot of questions in one question. Thank you. That, it's it's uh, thanks for asking me that. Um, I would say I got into it with my uh, uh, pasta business, but I think it started a long, long time ago when my mother and I would go uh, food shopping for you know our grocery shopping uh, in New York. Uh, I, I just loved going there, and it actually was a, a Friday night. Ritual or Saturday Saturday night ritual with the whole family would go to Pathmark. The four of us would go, and then we would. End. I know Pathmark well. <laughs> we would end with we would end with uh, uh, ice cream in in a in a baseball helmet. So so it was entertainment. It was entertainment. It was like that. You know, we didn't. You know, we we weren't. We didn't have a lot of funds, and my mother was very creative with how she entertained the kids. And so we went there. So I loved supermarkets and grocery stores. So I think it was always with me. And then once I started making my pastas and getting into grocery stores here in New Orleans, I really saw, I really remembered that, and, and, and it just stuck with me. And um, I, I learned more and more about it. And, and, and when this opportunity came up, I jumped at it because, you know, I wanted to have my own grocery store that served, that made everything from scratch and had a lot of staples. And this is exactly what it is. And this market really is even more important to me and to the city because, you know, you've heard the word food hub a lot, and, and, and we are a food hub. You know, we, we have a wholesale produce department. We serve restaurants and schools 
uh, as well as, as the you know, general public in our retail. And it's really important that we have these uh, food hubs throughout the cities of the country because it's really going to help bring fresh, local, affordable food to everybody rather than going to the big box stores. And so the more we support these, these businesses, the better quality of food and the healthier living we're going to be we're going to have. So to me, it's bigger than just the Dryad's public market. It's really more of a, a, a statement to the, the, the country that, you know, we're going to supply locally food, locally sourced food, healthier f- options um, to the public, you know, and um, that, you know, we want to be able to get to a public that maybe doesn't know that and doesn't realize the importance of it. And then we'll show them that, and then the more people tell these companies how to what they want, the, the more we'll be able to change the system that we have right now. So um, sourcing local produce, lo- local foods, um, sounds like a natural, but um, for many years we weren't doing that. We've mm-hmm. been getting our fruit from California, um, and, and quite frankly, my apologies to California, but I avoid it like the plague, and I really go after um, the Georgia and North Louisiana and Alabama peaches instead mm-hmm. of the California peaches, which are just not, don't have the flavor that no. the local stuff does. And, I, and I'll hunt out, you know, whatever little, you know, fruit stand on the street I have to to get that that mm-hmm. kind of product. So to, to know that you're going to be doing that is important. But it, it can't be easy. It's, it's, a, it's, it's not, a good job, right? And it's not easy, and it's also not something you do overnight. I mean, you know, when you look at our store right now, we have a lot of items that are not locally sourced, but we we also want people to come in and recognize what they see and be comfortable with it. And then the more uh, our base is comfortable with, the more we introduce them to it and um, the more that, you know, we can offer. So we'd like to get to that point where, you know, we have more locally sourced than non-locally sourced, but also, you know, we can only get so much from this region, so we have to have some staples that everybody wants. So it's not like I want to shove our, you know, my, you know, mission to everybody. I want to be able to, to, you know, I, offer I, alternatives. I want, yeah, I want everybody to get what they want, get their mm-hmm. staples, get local, get something they can afford, get something that's like locally raised, like a hogs, locally raised or, or beef, have a nice quality cut, but then also, hey, well, I don't want to spend that kind of money today. I'll, I'll go something a little bit more commercial. So, you know, we're, we're, we're going to offer everything. To, we're going to offer choices to everybody, and you'll have that choice. So I don't want to be, you know, this is the way I want to do it, and that's the only way there is. Let's talk about some of those choices. Um, let, let's um, kind of let's take a little verbal tour okay. through the market. So, so my verbal tour um, starts with the Oyster Bar, which I mm-hmm. adore because, of course, I'm crazy about oysters. And as I have mentioned us off the air, I love the soup because it, it's based on a classic – New Orleans oyster soup, but it's different. It's mm-hmm. contemporary. It's a lot of the food we have in the city now is kind of contemporary interpretations of traditional food. Say they don't fall far from the tree, but they definitely are trying to innovate. So I love the oyster bar, and I've been going there. And then um, this past Saturday, I was just up there to see how our show of the Willie Whites on the third floor was going and um, came downstairs and um, really reconnoitered. Mm-hmm. And, and looked at uh, some of the prepared foods, looked at some of what you're stocking, and um, 
I mean, you can go in there and do your, your regular shopping. You can buy your paper towels and your toilet paper. and um, Cat litter and, and dog food. There you go. <laughs> and then you can also, you know, find some of those little esoteric items. And I have to admit, I'm the one who's, who took, who bought all the lingonberry jelly. <laughs> that was All you. but one. I left one on the shelf because it's hard to get yeah. your price was ridiculous. I said yeah. somebody had to have mispriced this because <laughs> it was about a third of what I've been paying for 20 years. Well, That's my favorite we, jam. We have a very, very good general manager who knows how to source and get deals. And when we pass those deals on to our customers, she knows how to work the um, – so suppliers. that's real is going to continue because I bought them all. Well, thinking, you know what they're happens. They're going to figure out this is the wrong price. Well, let me, let, you know, let, this is what happens. Uh, uh, one day she can get a deal on 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 lingonberries. The next day she can get a, sure. a, a deal on something else. So sure. there'll be deals all over the place, but not necessarily on the same item. You know, for sure. example, we got an amazing deal on this uh, curry, this butter chicken curry, and this Thai curry. Um, and, and it was awesome. And Butter, it was ha- chicken, curry. It's, it's just something you – I didn't have you, lunch. This is not you, fair. You open a pouch and you put it in with the chicken, and it's and it's it's such an easy meal. And mm. um, and it was really a great deal. You know, the price went up because the deal's not there anymore. But Turner, she's really talented at finding and working with the distributors and finding the deals. And that's really kind of our, our our you know our goal is to be able to offer some really great products at a really great price. Um, and speaking of uh, Willie Mae Turner, I'd like to have her on the show in a future show. So let's line that up as we go along. Um, so butter chicken curry, yum. Okay, what are some of the other? I had your pie from the mm-hmm. bakery, and I'm a pie freak, and. Um, I am extremely particular because I'm one of those people whose mother's apple pie was the best I've ever had anywhere in life, of course. I know a lot of people say that, but my mother's crust was crispy, not soggy. She had apples galore in it, no glop, and not too much sugar and stuff, and and you know it was just mm-hmm. delicious. So I, I I really keep. I have two pies in my refrigerator right now. One from another bakery, not to be named, and one from yours. And yours was the better by far. Awesome. I well, love thank it because it has it had let's see apples and it, it had um, a mixture of fruits, mm-hmm. and the crust was nice and crispy, and um, just delicious. So yeah. I'm going to be a regular Car- pie customer. Carly's our head baker, and she does a great job. What's her name? Uh, Carly. Um, she does a. She does a great job, and um, we're so lucky and happy to have her. And and all of her cookies are amazing. They just have that right sweetness with a touch of salt on it. Um, She gets creative, but, you know, she stays with traditional um, rustic uh, pastries. And she does – one of her signatures are her uh, fruit pies and her savory – they're hand pies. So they're formed by hand. Hand pies. Mm. Uh, She does a great – she does great hand pies where, you know, it's fresh seasonal fruit. Simple, just strawberries, a little sugar, um, folds it in a delicious crust, bakes it off, and then she'll do some savory pies with cheese, a little ham, uh, and vegetables. So where do you get, what, what brand of ham do you get? This is a, an important test. Well, we make our own ham, and we also really? buy, oh, okay. yeah, we also buy, um, we have some I was hoping you were going to say that because that is my favorite um, ham. You know what? we got a caller, so let's see what Keith has to say. Hello, Keith. How you doing, Sister Jean? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'd like to ask the gentleman a question. Surely. There's a lot of gentrification going on in this city, and I'm very concerned. See, y'all like old timing. I like old timing too. Sometimes I like things to see the same, bro. Sister Jean, let me ask you a question. 
I'm a character guy. I cut grass from Zimple, Broad, all the way around to Hampson Street and back. All up in Maple. I know all the area. We call it Oak Town. Hey, you know, Keith, can I interrupt you for just a minute and tell you that unless they've fixed it since I was last there, the Myrtle Banks could use a little grass cutting. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to mention that. Go ahead. Go ahead. But you know what's taking up my time right now? I work at a warehouse, and these 18 wheels be rolling all day since the scene, I swear. I'll probably, if you give me an address, I can pass it on to somebody. But listen to this. When the Ferret bus, because I, 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 was, I was riding the Pony Express on the Ferret. When it comes to a rich hell, we used to be driving. When it comes to the entrance, it makes a right turn. And when it made a right turn, there was an elementary school right there. I never knew the name of the school. Do you know what I'm talking about? Well, that's where this is. The school is still there, Keith. That's oh, okay. That's, that's where that's where the I'm market is, and that's I where the young man took the school and made his market there. Because I, I, I was about to say, we don't care about our kids no more. Um, hey, Keith, let me tell you something. Here's what I want you to know: that school building has been empty for. Yeah. Couple decades now. Listen, hear me now. Yeah. Okay, yeah. hold on, hold on. I want you. You gotta give I me. I've a... been on that end in a while myself, so I just wanted to know: was the school still there, or did somebody take it and use it for something else? Okay, Here, no. The, the school... school needs to be a school system. Yeah. Gene. Now, okay. This goes to show that city council or the mayor somebody is lagging. How can you how can you keep a school dead like that? Even Judge Israel August. See, I call windows yeah. like eyes. All these schools, I'm saying, they got blinders on his eyes and chains on his How can you keep a lockdown like that? Yeah, now, Keith, are you ready to hear me? Yeah. All right, darling. Now, look, here's the deal. That school was empty for a long time. It had major issues, structural and so forth, and nobody was dealing with it. And then they had a, a massive fire, burned the whole thing out, and the people... Who bought it? And they're a community-oriented company. Um, they could have walked away from the thing because it was gone, G-O-N-E, gone. But they didn't because they believe in the Central City community and they wanted to do something for the community. Now, we have a lot of new schools in the city, and, and they've been built as part of the program of post-Katrina, and, and you know that. So they didn't need that school in that location anymore. And, in fact, there were a lot of other possible uses for it. But what people who came in decided was really needed in the area was a food market because there was none in that area. So they came in and said, okay, we're going to give the community a, a – hello? We're going to give the community a um, market that it doesn't have. And um, that's the thinking behind this, was was turning it back into something of value to the community. So, Keith, I appreciate your call, and I understand your sentiment. And gentrification is definitely an issue we're having to deal with in community after community. But this market is aimed at serving the community around it and not gentrifying. So now I'm going to turn it back over to Daniel because this is one of his objectives. Yeah, it's exactly. You know, we're we're very um, aware. We're, our our um, you know our goal is is to serve the community of Central City and then the surrounding areas of New Orleans. Our goal is to bring affordable, healthy food to the um, community of Central City and the surrounding part of New Orleans. So your 
going to find you know, staples. You're going to find things that you recognize. You're going to find things that you grew up with. You're also going to find some local food. You're also going to find things that you might not know, you, you might not be comfortable with right now, but you might taste it, and we're going to offer lots of samples, so you, you are going to be comfortable with it. So we are going to offer a wide variety, and we are hiring people from the neighborhood, um, and we will continue to hire people from the neighborhood um, as well. So, you know, that's our goal. That's our mission. That's our mandate as well. And I, I know that um, both the people who developed the building as well as yourself and others have been talking with people mm-hmm. in the community and kind of reminiscing about the original use of the building and also um, the new uses. And, and I think you heard uh, exactly what um, I know we all hear is that there was a need for this. There was mm-hmm. a need for the market. And um, so I, 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 I applaud what you're doing. Now, I want to get back to what I love about this in there. And one of my favorite things is that you can go into this market and get a cocktail. Yeah. I don't know of any other market where you can do that. And, that and, and the bartender, the mixologist, makes a darn good drink because I'm an old-fashioned person. Mm-hmm. I, I came to old fashions when I moved to New Orleans. I, I really didn't know about them before, even though I, I had drunk bourbon. But um, he, he makes a great drink. And uh, it's, do you know, can you tell me anything about him? Uh, Kevin Davis, uh, he's been bartending for a, a good amount of years, and um, you know he's just you know he he likes the classic um, cocktails. Um, he he I brought in uh, Kimberly Pattenbragg to kind of help design our first cocktail menu. She's my um, general manager over at Three Muses, and um, you know our goal, the three of our three of us, we decided we wanted to keep it very traditional with you know local and seasonal ingredients to add to it as well. So we didn't want to kind of be foo-foo or frou-frou or anything like that. But, you know, so our drinks aren't overly sweet, but some are, you know. But some of them are just steeped in tradition, like the old-fashioned that you had. Um, we have a daiquiri. We have a, 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 our version of a margarita. I think it's called Bada Bing Margarita. Bada we also have something, you know, we, we wanted to pay homage to the school. So our bars, we, we called our bar Bar 38 after the school, McDonough 38. Um, and we have a pop quiz of the day, so it's kind of like our special, you know, um, uh, that changes, you know, daily or weekly depending on the availability and what we have that we, you know, we got in, you know, some, you know, special ingredients we got our hands on or anything local or seasonal kind of thing, something like that. So, you know, we're trying to keep the bar simple. We don't have a ton of drinks. We have about six, seven cocktails right now. We have all of our beers, our local beers on tap. We have a few um, non-local bottle beers, and then most of them are local. And we have a small selection of wine. So we're not trying to make a giant bar. This isn't our main business whatsoever, but it's a nice place to go for happy hour because there's a lot of room to hang out. Um, and um, and you have the oyster bar right next to exactly. it. So that's exactly what I did. I got my oyster soup, mm-hmm. and then I um, uh, moved over and had uh, had my cocktail. Went to your prepared foods table and picked up my catfish and gumbo. My husband mm-hmm. got his greens. I mean, that's another thing I love about your prepared foods is that it's not your your sort of typical, you know, walk into the. Um, um, uh, n- nationally oriented um, 
serve food service, but really into mm-hmm. an area that has the local favorites, and, and they were all good. The catfish was good. Catfish um, Jackson is what it was called. Jackson. It was like cornmeal-crusted catfish that we roast, and then we put a like sauce piquant in there, so right on top. Now, you also have a, past- a special pastry um, area that mm-hmm. you personally are doing, and, and you have a background in uh, a culinary background that we haven't touched on. So, mm-hmm. give me just a little bit of background. Oh, my area is the pasta, the pasta shop. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's S's Foods, and we do um, uh, fresh pasta in in the corner, in the cave, as we call it. So um, you can get anywhere, you know, anything from angel hair, fettuccine, rigatoni, pappardelle, uh, shells. Uh, we have marinara, tomato basil, pesto, vodka sauce, and we're going to be launching on Saturday our pasta bar where you can order, uh, choose your pasta, choose your added ingredients, and choose your sauce. Uh, and you can get Yum. like a small or a large um, serving size, so you know, depending on how hungry you are. And you can eat it there, you can take it with you. Um, so we're looking forward to that, and uh, we'll be uh, uh, giving out samples uh, Thursday and Saturday as well uh, of the pasta and the sauce, so you can kind of come and taste it and see how awesome it is. Um, so, yeah, we have a really great team uh, down there, and they're, they're, they're doing it. They're making it work, making it happen. Uh, I'm, I'm just uh, I'm really excited about it. And um, what what other aspects of the market uh, do you want to touch on um, before, Daniel? I move on to talk about the art show that's going to be up on the third floor. Anything in particular that we haven't touched on? Yeah, well, I think we hit on a lot. You're, you're open. Your hours are phenomenal. 8 a.m. to 8 p.m.? Yeah, that'll probably... No, 8 a.m. to... 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. weekdays and 8 a.m. Mm-hmm. to 10 p.m. on the weekends. On uh, Friday and Saturday. And um, we're going to be opening up on Sundays as of Nick, this Sunday coming up. Um, and our hours will change and get, get bigger when um, our business increases. Um, so, you know, look for us to have increased hours um, sooner rather than later. Um, I think we hit on a lot. Of, you know, I really, um, you know, I'm really proud of the team and they're doing a great job. I think, you know, we can give you know, talk about our, our, uh, our meat department. I don't think we mentioned that. Um, we're making our own sausages. We're curing our own um, salumi as well. But we have andouille. We have boudin. We're making our own hot dogs. Um, we're using... You make your own hot dogs? Yeah, our, our, um, our wow. butcher, Leanne. Wow, naturally source hot dogs? Our butcher, I don't Leanne, have to go yeah. get my Nathan's hot dogs anymore. <laughs> well, we have that, Island. too. We have Nathan's as well, but we also have uh, uh, made-in-house hot dogs. So you have, you know, chorizo. Um, you know, we're going to be, you know, have uh, some all-natural chickens that we're going to be selling. Um, and again, you know, we're going to have things that are affordable as well as, you know, all natural. So I think that's a great combination to have that range from the affordable and up so that it truly is a market for everybody. Yeah, we're not trying to, you know, you know, you know, put, give everyone our agenda. You know, uh, I, I like all natural. That's what I eat. But not everyone could afford it. and Not everybody wants it. So, you know, we're. We're here for the public, not for our own, you know, self-interest. Now, let's touch on one thing that I think is really important, because when you look at that big building on, 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 uh, from Martha Castle Haley Boulevard, it, it, the front entrance is kind of a, uh, an issue. You, you can't really enter through that. So people may think that the building is still closed. You do have to come around the back, and there's a nice, big, mm-hmm. spacious parking lot back there, so you can pull right in behind uh, the market and, and walk in those doors and, and, you know, have this whole world of 
um, both uh, affordable and gourmet food available. So I wanted to make sure that people know that. Don't try to come in the front. Come in the back. That's right. I think there's a Cajun song about that. What's that song, Tannen? The Back Door. Yeah, The Back Door. <laughs> you might <laughs> play that D. on your... By D.L. Menard. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, We'll go, we won't go into the details of what it meant in that case. <laughs> but um, so welcome, uh, Daniel, and, and thank you for doing this. Um, you're thank the you. chef also at Three Muses, so I assume you're keeping that going. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to have to get myself up there. I, I'm, a, I'm a really bona fide downtown girl, but I make my excursions, so I'll make a point of trying to get there. Awesome. And, and thank, thank you. you both for coming in. I say both because Anna um, has been uh, shepherding this and making sure that Danny got in, despite the fact that he's opening tomorrow. So let me let you go and go get yourself set up. Okay. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Now, um, I have uh, this guy who I typified in my um, uh, newsletter as my best buddy, (laughs) Robert Tannen, a.k.a. my husband, who helped me curate this incredible show that's going to be on the third floor of the building. Um, uh, and Oh, by the way, let me just m- make sure that it's very clear to everybody that there's kind of a walkthrough tomorrow and a little bit of media stuff that will happen in midday. And then on Saturday from 8 to 8, big deal, grand opening. Y'all come and enjoy Lots it. of crawfish. Lots of, oh, man. And the crawfish right now is amazingly good, right? Yep. It's so tender and, and music. juicy. And music. Lots of live music. Um, Sophie Lee is playing. Glenn David Andrews is playing. Kip School uh, are going to have a couple bands, and we're going to have some bands from the neighborhood kind of uh, uh, a little bit different. I think people are going to really enjoy it. Sounds like a lot of fun. I will be there. Awesome. Okay. Thank you so much. Bye. Um, so um, now on the third floor of this building... That has been looking like it's closed, but isn't. It's open. It's just an issue with the front entrance, and that that will um, evolve. Um, We have a gallery space that the the Creative Alliance of New Orleans, which is my other life um, as a head of a nonprofit that is trying to encourage greater support for the arts and for the creative industries, um, we have a show opening of an artist who lived and presented his work right in the heart of Central City about three blocks from this market. And um, I think that uh, we um, uh, really have taken an opportunity here to honor um, this major artist who is no longer living and no longer with us, but whose work is and... um, we had access to a very large collection of his work, and we decided to uh, put it uh, on exhibit on the third floor where we have this gallery we call um, Cano's Creative Space. So we're opening that show of this artist in conjunction with the opening of the marketplace um, on the third floor. So we invite you to also please come upstairs too, and we'll have some refreshments up there as well, um, and, and see this show because... Um, Bob Tannen, who helped curate it, is going to tell you why it's so interesting, beautiful, and important. So, Mr. Tannen, Willie White, and you personally experienced um, working with him and and collecting his work and and going uh, to his porch where he literally hung his his work on the uh, clothesline on his porch. So, 
the first time you ever saw that, what did you think? Well, in the early 80s, I would ride uptown um, along the old Dryad Street before we're at the Castle Haley Boulevard and um, discovered these magnificent drawings slash paintings on the porch and knocked on the door and introduced myself to Mr. Willie White, who was born in, I believe, 1908 and died um, not so long ago. Mr. White, and I refer to him as Mr. White, in my mind is a universal artist. I'll, I'll make a distinction between an artist who is a contemporary artist or an artist who is a self-taught artist, or an artist who is a self-educated artist. Mr. White was a universal artist in the sense that in his head, in his imagination, in his work, he captured the history of art from the earliest known drawings found in sacred places and perhaps, perhaps even in caves to the most contemporary art of the 20th and uh, 21st century. Um, Mr. White somehow was able to produce um, a combination of images that reflected some of the earliest ideas about art, uh, images of animals, images of uh, plants, images of uh, himself, in fact. Uh, His self-portraits are quite amazing. So Mr. White, for me, is... He's not a primitive artist, he's not a black artist, he's not a white artist, he's a universal artist. And there are very few that I consider of that kind, and uh, at another time we can talk about who are some of the others. But his work is timeless, and in that regard, it's very important because in these drawings slash paintings, which are made with felt-tip pens, uh, he was able to capture... uh, examples of, of human experience uh, through the ages. You know, you said he, he's not a white artist, he's not a black artist, but he is black, and um, he came up uh, in Natchez until about third grade and um, took off pretty soon after that and um, came to work, uh, I understand, on the river boats on the river and also repairing the levee. So it's kind of amazing that somebody who was out there, um, you know, doing back-breaking work would evolve as an artist. How well, did that happen? Well, he, he, you know, he, he, sure, he's, a, he's an African-American, he's an African person, but to the extent that all human life uh, very likely began in Africa, uh, that's another aspect of his universality. Uh, clearly, he had a difficult childhood growing up in, a, in uh, rural Mississippi and then coming coming to uh, New Orleans and working for low wages at uh, very, very uh, difficult jobs. Uh, But still, uh, while all that was happening, he was able to produce this very unusual art. I'd like to also mention a specific example that that he talked to me about. After the Challenger destruction, the, the Challenger space shuttle destruction when it, it exploded. He was very 
uh, moved and concerned about that and all of the people who died uh, in, that, in that disaster. And he started painting images of space shuttles and including the space shuttles along with his other images of plants and animals and urban scapes. And crosses representing the memorializing of Right, and his religious uh, beliefs. And so he he expanded his palette, so to speak, or his uh, subject matter to include a contemporary event at that time uh, in the 80s, which moved him. so I think this exhibit is important. First of all, I think it may be the first one-person exhibit he's had in New Orleans. He's been involved in museum shows all over the country, but generally I think they were group shows. There may have been uh, a solo show I'm unaware of, um, but he uh, is able in these in these 40 or 50 images, I think we have about 45 45 examples of his work, you'll see the range of his interest um, from the most representational and the most um, um, mystical in certain respects to the most abstract. And I hope I hope people will come and enjoy it. And um, so, as I said before, we're going to open the show of this work uh, in conjunction with the opening of the market, um, tomorrow midday there's uh, going to be a tour of the building, and, and we'll have a little bit of refreshments up there on the third floor uh, for the um, exhibit. And then um, uh, we'll be really looking to um, to build um, uh, on the uh, initial opening with quite a few other events. In fact, we'll probably be doing a couple talks. And, you know... Excuse me. I hope that some of his family members who I haven't been able to. Um, well, he has. He had a niece that I knew uh, named Nancy Ford, who actually painted with him and made some of her own abstractions, as well as other friends of his that might have worked on his paintings as well. Uh, Nancy Ford. I've been out of touch with her for twenty some odd years, so I don't know where she is and where she lives. Uh, there's a wonderful painting of uh, a self-portrait of, of Mr. White with uh, his niece, Nancy Ford, that will be on exhibit. Uh, that's an extraordinary work of art. And so I hope maybe somebody listening in the audience knows her and can um, let her know about the show because I would love to welcome her to see it because it, it really is a, um, a monumental um, show uh, that 45 works by one artist is unusual and uh, it's very easy to view. I mean, it's literally uh, just an elevator ride up. Um, we do have elevators so uh, uh, folks can get up uh, to the third floor easily. There, there are a number of collectors of art in New Orleans who have examples of his work. Uh, Joanne Clevenger, who I believe still owns the, uh, uh, the what is the name of that restaurant? The <laughs> Upper Line. Upper Line Restaurant. Thank and you. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, the Gitter family uh, have works of his, and there there are works of his in New Orleans Museum of Art, I believe. Uh, and, I think, and the Ogden I think we, has work. And the Ogden, we've donated some works uh, ourselves. I, I'm I'm really excited that we're having an opportunity to show um, Willie White in his home territory, literally, as I say, blocks from where he actually made his work and hung it on the clothesline for people to see and. Um, 
I, I hope that you all will come and see it. I, I know that it's not your typical art site. It's not, you know, Noma. It's not the CAC. It's not Ogden. Um, uh, but it, it, it is a full-fledged gallery, and, and um, we've dedicated it to this artist um, at this time um, to note you know, the opening up of the building to the community and through its market. Can so. I say one, one last thing? You, sure. Um, Willie Birch, uh, another important artist from Louisiana, from New Orleans, and I and Jean had a conversation about Mr. White uh, a few days ago. And Willie made the point that he, that he, unlike artists who are academic in the sense that they are repeating a formula, uh, that they've learned from their from their teachers and from the history of art. Uh, Willie is real uh, in that his work his work comes strictly out of himself. Uh, it's not trying to be work to be sold or to be collected. It's it's authentic, and I think uh, Mr. Birch as well as Mr. White uh, have that quality in their work. Um, and originality. I mean, yes. uh, truly, because it comes straight from his mind and not from exposure to the art of, of other people. Although I understand that one of the things that encouraged him in the direction of making art was seeing the art actually on the fences of the uh, French Quarter, which kind of explains his idea of, of hanging it from the clothesline on the porch. It never occurred to me until just mm-hmm. this moment. Seeing it displayed right. on, the, on the fence sort of suggested the idea of, of hanging it out where the public could see it. And, and I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of folks who lived in the neighborhood who remember seeing those paintings, and I hope to see you also on the third floor of the Myrtle Banks School Building. It's in between Thalia and Arado Street. Um, best to enter from the back um, and go through the garage and enter the building through the market. You know, pick up some goodies in in the marketplace and then um, head up to the third floor uh, and and see what we got going on. Um, so, best buddy Robert Channon, thank you for joining us and um, thank you very much for helping to put the show together. We really appreciate your work on it. Um, and we will also uh, be open weekdays, basically during business hours, and um, otherwise uh, we'll have special events. And and you know the folks in the Central City area are putting together a new program called First Fridays, and, and uh, those will be tours, and, and we'll be open for the First Fridays, so we're real excited about um, what the Merchants uh, Association on uh, O.C. Haley is doing on that, and we'll be a part of that as well. So um, welcome you to uh, come and enjoy um, the Myrtle Banks uh, building now, open to the public in a big way this coming weekend. Okay, well, now I have the pleasure of um, honoring somebody else who's been honored for his achievements in life. Uh, Recently, um, David Spielman was the recipient of the the Michael P. Smith Photographer of the Year Award for the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities, which, folks, is no small achievement because, as those who are familiar with Michael Smith's work, he documented the music scene of the city here probably for at least two, if not three decades. Three decades. Three plus, decades. Plus some. 
And he was also um, a citizen. He was a real true citizen of the city, very much involved with the Tipitinas and, and the music scene and, and fostering it, not just taking pictures of it, but also supporting and, 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 and fostering it. So to have an honor um, in, in his name is to say that the person being honored has also um, made an effort to really document the life of our area and others. And so um, David uh, Spielman is with us, and I want to understand, um, you know, always how... I love to hear how people got started doing what they do. So (laughs) that's always one of my first questions. How did you start becoming a photographer? And then I want to know about the work you've done around the world, but also why you fastened on New Orleans and, and are, um, been documenting the life of our region. Well, thanks for having me. And let me just say briefly something about Michael P. Smith. When I first moved to New Orleans in 1973 and went to my first jazz fest that spring, Michael P. Smith was the man. He was everywhere. He clearly had the eyes and the ears of everybody. So it became very apparent to me. I, I, I was very much interested in the music scene, but it became very apparent to me that knocking him off the throne was not in my skill set. <laughs> so very quietly for years and years and years, I just watched the man work, and he was brilliant. And one of my most favorite stories is is that the, the, the musicians, when Mike would show up at one of their gigs and start photographing them, they realized that they had arrived. It didn't matter what was being played on the radio. It didn't matter who was dancing at their stuff at a party. But if Mike Smith was there taking pictures of them, they felt that they had arrived. Now, back to the... the, the Before you leave, Michael <laughs> Smith, I just want to comment that um, I don't remember the circumstances under which I came to own this photograph. But um, somewhere along the line, I got a photograph of Alan Toussaint that he had mm-hmm. taken and there's a lot of images of Toussaint out there, you know, honoring his his contributions uh, to our musical heritage. But his picture was beautiful. Oh, yeah. Just, I don't know, his, his the set, uh, you would be able to tell me technically what it is, but the contrast right. of black and white. And he worked primarily in black oh, and white. Exclusively, exclusively? for that, yeah, for that okay. kind of work, yeah. And um, this particular image is just, to me, one of the most beautiful I've ever seen mm-hmm. of Toussaint. Because a lot of them are, are kind of, you know, um, shots of, in concerts right. and there's lots of other stuff, noise going right. on in the picture. This one is really very much of just the man, the musician. And, and um, again, you know, uh, in, in choosing to focus on musicians, he was really honoring and contributing to our musical heritage. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when you look at... <clears throat> the body of work that he produced from the very first Jazz Fest <coughs> to the last one that he did before he passed, there will never, ever be another body of work that complete. I mean, he was at Jazz Fest every single day, whether it rained, whether it was clear, it didn't matter. Mike was there. And so, and of course, in those days, in the early days of those kinds of festivals, he had complete access. Today, with handlers and, and promoters and stuff like that, we are delegated to second-rate citizens almost to take really? pictures of them. Yeah, and, you really feel that way because oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, oh. I've I've quit taking. I, I I don't go to the jazz fest and take pictures anymore because 
<coughs> a lot of the entertainers only permit photographers to shoot them for the first three songs. And and they've also raised the stages so high, and they put the photographers down in kind of the bullpen in front. And so an awful lot of the shots are, are of shooting up their noses, mm-hmm. and, and it's not very flattering. And, and mm-hmm. so it, I understand their concerns, but it's the, the beauty of Mike Smith's work was the spontaneity and the access that he had. He was backstage with them. He would literally get up on the stage with them and take pictures of them while they're performing. So there's this intimacy that nobody else gets today. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's that's one of the, the the brilliant things about his. So so how do you uh, how do you take his uh, commitment and sincerity forward that earns you this award in your work? Well, what what I've I've done is I did a book on musicians. I just did um, uh, Pelican Publishing did it a couple of years ago. I had a really great guy Fred Lyon write the text for me um, or with me, and and. Um, my book's titled When Not Performing. What I did was is I found out all of these 70-some musicians. I got to them and I asked, what do you do when you're not performing? Because there are thousands of pictures of them in clubs and on stage at different events, whether it's Jazz Fest or the Crawfish you know, Boil or whatever. So they basically took me into their home. Some took me into the church where the the, the minister or the pastor helped keep them off hard drugs. They took me to their spot on Esplanade where they find their muse. Um, you know, so you got to see them when not performing. And that was something that was different than what Mike was doing. And, um, you know, I've got pictures of Fats and, and, and um, Frogman and, and, you know, Pete Fountain, a great story about Pete Fountain. He wanted to be shot down in Pirate's Alley. It so happened that that was the day that Archbishop Hannon's funeral was going to take place in the St. Louis Cathedral. So Pete and I are standing there, and I asked Pete, I said, you know, if, if Archbishop Hannon would ask you to play at his funeral, what do you think the song would be? And he says, do you know what it means to miss New Orleans? <laughs> so I asked him, he had his clarinet with him, would you play a little? So there I am with his son-in-law, his manager, um, and then me and Pete were in Pirate's Alley. The archbishop's body is on the other side of the wall in the cathedral getting ready for the funeral, and Pete Fountain is playing Do You Know What It Means to Miss New Orleans. When I tell this story, I still get goosebumps. I'm getting goosebumps. And, you know, that is the beauty of New Orleans and the music scene. They're not celebrities. They are our neighbors. They are the guys Mm -hmm. down the street. Mm -hmm. So that makes it very special. So I... I tell people, you know, when you add a camera to the conversation, you alter a conversation. Mm-hmm. So my job, I think, is to be invisible. Mm-hmm. I shoot very small uh, Leica cameras, mm-hmm. no motor drives, no zoom lenses. Mm-hmm. And so people aren't intimidated by them. Mm-hmm. They're not put off. They're less obtrusive. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, you asked me earlier, how did it all start? When I was in high school in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where I'm from, I was a sophomore my first year in high school. Some seniors, after swim practice, we were standing around the lockers. They were looking through a camera. I asked if I could look through the camera, and at that moment, bam, there was an epiphany. My blood pressure dropped, my pulse slowed, and I knew 
I was going to be a photographer. Now, I didn't have a clue what a photographer was or what a photographer did, but I knew at that moment I had direction. I had a purpose, and I've been spending the rest of my life trying to fulfill it. I can't tell you how many times I have heard creative people speak that way about discovering the path they wanted to take. And one of the most famous ones that I read about, didn't experience directly, but read about, was there's a famous um, ceramist from this region, George Orr, Mm -hmm. who was a genius and did very, very outlandish ceramics all the way back in the the end of the 19th century. And um, he talks about going into a room where pottery was being made and putting his hands on the wheel where Mm -hmm. you start Mm -hmm. making a pot and saying that was it sure for his life right that was his chosen no, path it, it chose him <laughs> it, right it, it found him and then just like me photography found me and then i've been trying to perfect the craft the other thing that i heard um last week i had tank and the bangas mm-hmm. on the show and um, every single one of the players in the group, from the musical director and the lead vocalist, Tank, to all of them, they all talked about the influence of their parents and their churches mm-hmm. in fostering their work. So these early influences in in youth are so important in shaping sure. what um, what's going to happen. So for you, you had that immediate flash when you put your eyes through a camera's lens. But, but from there, how did you uh, uh, develop well, as a photographer? Well, you know, my parents were as clueless as I was about what a photographer was. Uh, they were supportive in that, you know, as long as I did some other things, uh, they didn't worry about it. I mean, I was on the swim team. I was on the tennis team. So I was very active. But slowly but surely, the, the, the craft and, and my talent started to develop and and I would um, uh, I, I would take all the old magazine articles from popular popular photography and modern photography, and I'd rewrite them. And so years later, my father found I had a box up in my room where I'd rewritten all of these articles about you know the f stops and all of the different procedures. And 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 he read them and, and he said, you know, if you would have studied this hard in school. You would have been a straight-A student. And I said, well, I didn't like those subjects, Dad. And so he just kind of smiled. And, you know, sorry, yeah, I'm sorry to say you know, my parents didn't really live long enough to see me kind of evolve into what I'm doing today. But, but um, you know, that's the way it goes. So let's, So how would you characterize the work that you're doing today? So, so if somebody uh, also wants to see your work and find it, um, how, would, how would they do that? Well, I've got a gallery. Um, at, at 1332 Washington Avenue. It's conveniently located catty corner from Commander's Palace, which is, is probably <laughs> one of the most you know, best-known restaurants in the city. It's right next door to the cemetery, Lafayette Number sure, 1. Sure, sure. Uh, it's open seven days a week. People are most welcome to come in. Um, I've got four books. Uh, I did a book on Southern writers, Portraits of Southern writers. I did a book, um, two books on Katrina, Katrinaville Chronicle. And then between that and the second Katrina book um, was When Not Performing. And then the Katrina Decade, which um, was produced by the Historic New Orleans Collection. Mm -hmm. And um, they had a show 
for about six months down there during the 10th anniversary. Um, so, you know, I, I got a lot of work out there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, speaking of Katrina and, and photographing that, that had to be, we all experienced Katrina in one way or another, and it was all traumatic, no matter what. Even sure. if you didn't lose your own house and, and nobody in your own family was affected, just talking to people, it, it seemed like every other person that you talked to had lost everything. Sure. Or lost most, and or, or, or got had to leave the city. Uh, it was really sort of escorted out of the city right. on, on buses never to return. I mean, it was very, very traumatic, but to photograph it well, must have been... Truly devastating. Well, it was. Um, you know, I'm. I stayed through the storm. I'm friends with the poor Claire nuns at Henry Clay and, and Magazine. I've known them for over 30 years, and I helped them get ready. And they said, "Would you like to stay?" And and I said, "Okay." And 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 uh, my cat Walker Evans and I stayed in the monastery with them. And then a couple of days after the storm, when it became very apparent this was not going to be a quick situation I got them to leave and so then I promised them I'd stay in the monastery to try to make sure it didn't get looted or anything bad happened to it so at that point you know if you remember we had no communication cell phones were in their infancy there were no text messages it didn't matter if you had a cell phone because 504 didn't work precisely yeah. so so that's why I have a uh, <coughs> an, uh, an area code from somewhere else and I'm never giving it up well exactly except and that it's in New York and so when Sandy hit I got I was out of communication <laughs> again all over all over again so I started to realize that this thing was going to be all encompassing and, and of course I'm not a hard news guy so I don't have editors and, and people pumping information to me and telling me where the action is. So I am a big fan of the work that was done during the, the Depression and during the Dust Bowl era by the WPA and the FSA. And these are the guys that always take the long view. Whether it's, What does FSA stand um, for? Farm, Farm Security Association. It was mm-hmm. these, these were Roosevelt things where they put p- sure. photographers to document America. Mm-hmm. Works mm-hmm. Progress Association. Oh, and gosh, so, there was so much done for the arts during that oh, yeah. era. And so, you know, I, I realized that there was going to be none of that su- subsidized by anybody else. And so I just went about my business. I mean, my heroes are Gordon Parks, Dorothea Lang, Walker Evans. And they take the long view. You know, today... If it isn't trending, it isn't happening. And I knew that we needed to have a long view of what this storm, what this story was all about. So I would very systematically go out into the different neighborhoods, visiting, revisiting, visiting it again, trying to find the images. Now, my job, I'm an observer. My job is to render the best possible picture of a specific situation, leaving my biases out of it. Nobody really cares what I think. They want to see what it's like. They will make up their own mind. Five years, five minutes. So you're not you're not being editorial in your <clears throat> photography. You are being objective or attempting to be. Yeah, certainly I have a point of view. Everybody has a point of view. But but I'm not a. I'm not trying point to. Point of view, interesting. Yeah, I, I'm not trying to be like some people are. Um, a propagandist where they've got a point of view that they're trying to build their case to that point of view. You're not an advocate. Yeah. <clears throat> and so, um, you You're know. You're an artist. I hope so. I mean, you know, 
Arnold Newman always said, you know, when somebody asked him in an interview once, what's it like being an artist? And he, and he corrected him. He says, I'm a photographer. He said, you're a writer, you're a sculptor, you're a painter. It's not for you to call yourself an artist. It is what somebody else needs to call you. Hmm, I don't know if I agree with that because, yeah. um, you know, just looking at the conversation we just had about the artist Willie White, um, Willie White defined himself as an artist. Mm-hmm. And I don't know whether he actually used that word, but he, again, chose that path. And so I, he was conscious of being an artist and making art. So in in, in my opinion, um, everybody has the capacity for creativity, and to the extent that they attempt to express it, um, they have the right to claim the title artist. Okay. I, you know. I see it a little. I think they should claim themselves as a writer or as a painter, painter and a sculptor, things like that. And but somebody else puts the mantle of the artist on them. Yeah, we could go on. About I know this, this is this because is, I really yeah yeah I don't necessarily uh, agree right. with that because um, I think that um, it's it's almost it's a right, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's a right that you have to call yourself an artist. I don't think you have to wait for somebody to authorize you right. to be an artist. And, and um, I mean, I consider myself an artist sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I didn't follow that pursuit. I didn't have that you, that moment that you had, that euphoric moment. I always mm-hmm. believed in my ability to make art, but I, I shied away from it for various reasons. Right. But I still consider that, in part, I'm an artist. So. Okay. Well, okay. But, uh, all right, let's go to, I want to just understand now as our city has been changing and evolving so much, and um, in some ways for better, in some ways it really challenges our cultural legacy. How, 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 where do you come out on, on how we are evolving and changing as a result of Katrina and, and the influx of folks who have, what, kind of woke up to mm-hmm. what we have here and want to be here? What's your well, feeling I about mean, all that? It's inevitable. It's, you know, you can't stop it. It's just like when the levees broke, you couldn't stop the water. It's going to happen. Um, and so I try, I mean, you know, I'm a grumpy old man. So, I'm, I'm of course, I'm thinking, you know, oh, wait a minute, what happened to my old New Orleans? You know, what happened to D.H. Holmes? You know, what happened to this? What happened to that? Ain't there no more. <laughs> yeah, ain't there no more, exactly. <laughs> and so, yeah, you, you feel like, you know, we've lost a, a tremendous amount. But, you know, the World's Fair caused some of that. The oil recessions have caused some of that. So, I mean, you know, it, 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 I don't know. It, it, it is what it is. You know? It is what it is. That's the perfect uh, line to go out with. So we deal with uh, it is what it is all the time. But I'll tell you honestly, I'm all about it is what we hope to make it be. And I right. know that's in your heart as well. Um, David Spielman, thank you so much for being with us today. Keep on taking those pictures. Well, and thanks winning those awards thanks so um, much. y'all thank you for listening today don't forget to go out to the dryads public market this weekend go see the willie white work and check out david spillman's work on washington avenue over there by commanders it's still there thank you gene nathan crosstown conversations talk to you next week